It's Wednesday, June 16th, 2021. Welcome to the Philly Press Box Radio Roundtable brought to you by the Irish Rover Station House in Langhorn, PA, and Allstate Insurance in Westchester, PA. I'm Bill Furman. I'll be your host tonight along with my partner, Jim Chet Chesko. And hey, Chet, the Sixers are in a little playoff tussle, and the Phillies have fallen to five back. But we have two great guests tonight. There's plenty to talk about in Philly sports again tonight. Yeah, well, as usual, Bill, are in a perfect world, let me say, the Sixers would be a couple of hours from ending their series with the Hawks, but it just didn't work out quite the way we planned. Uh, they're in a real dogfight right now. They have to win game five, or Sixers fans are going to be in an awful mood all day Thursday and Friday. Uh, as for the Phillies, Bill, uh, a wild week at home with three straight walk-off wins and the, the shutout of the Yankees on Sunday. Things were looking great. Then they went out west. You know how that's going so far. Their road rolls, uh, the road woes continue. So we'll talk about the Phils. Absolutely. Clayton Kershaw tonight and then off to San Francisco for three games against first place Gabe Kapler and the Giants. How about that? Well, hey, we got a couple great guests tonight. Newly retired Frank Fitzpatrick joins us and the voice of the Phillies, Tom McCarthy. Uh, is going to join us in the second half. So let's get it started. Let's welcome Frank back to Philly Press Box Radio. Frank, welcome back and welcome to retirement. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I, I by the way, I really liked your uh, opening. It's the uh, it must have cost you guys a lot of money. Huh? Oh yeah, home done, <laughs> home done, all home done. <laughs> Frank, uh, congrats on the retirement. And we're not going to do a Ralph Edwards. This is your life kind of thing, but. Right. We do want to talk maybe about some of your memorable moments in your long career, nearly a half century in journalism. I'm not saying you're old, but you've been working at this a long time. I know you joined the Inquirer in 1980, but where were you in the 1970s? Uh, tell us about you know, how you got to the Inquirer. Well, my last two years of college, I was an intern in the sports department at the old Philadelphia Bulletin. Um, and one of the... the the night sports editor there, I worked nights, and a guy was named Lou King, and he had worked in Reading, Pennsylvania. So when I graduated, he kindly wrote me a letter of recommendation to the managing editor there, and uh, they sort of hired me, you know, cold. Uh, I didn't get it. I wasn't in sports, though. I was, I was uh, a police reporter. I got, and then I became an editor about a year or two later, and I stayed in editing. I went to 1979. The Courier Post started a uh, Sunday paper. And I was hired as the deputy Sunday editor. And I was there uh, a year when uh, I got the call for the Inquirer. Oh, by the way, I got to show this picture just because I love the Bobby Sherman look. Frank, Tony Osmond, yeah. 48 years ago. Love that hair, Frank. Yeah, it's, uh, that, you know, I'd gotten a haircut two days earlier. I just want you to know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> hey, hey. Uh, this is my uh, Gerardo Rivera look. 1980. I, I, did I see that in a post office anywhere? <laughs> <laughs> you may well have, yeah. Hey, hey, Frank, you mentioned to us before uh, when we had you on about your mom being a real sports fan and, and all that and, and keeping scores and things of that of, of games. Um, was she a huge influence on you becoming a sports writer? Was she she the one kind of that got you the love of, the, uh, of sports? You know, in, to some extent, I think she was because I spent a lot of nights 
at the radio listening to games with her. But my dad really was because he, although he was a, uh, he worked in a composing room. He was a proofreader at the old bulletin. And he, a guy there owned the Roxborough Advertiser and the Germantown Courier. And my dad was so interested in sports and he liked the, the full round of writing. He made him the sports editor of those two papers. So I grew up sort of around this, you know, I, it was only a weekly, but I could see my father working in journalism. And oftentimes he would be too busy because he was working another job to write his column. And he would ask me to write it for him. I was 13, 14, and this was, <laughs> was quite a thrill. His column was called Sort of Sporty. <laughs> so so I, I remember the couple of columns that I wrote there. I, I wouldn't want to see them again, but uh, I think that's how I really got interested in, in, uh, in wanting to be a sports writer. And then I had, I wrote for the Marple Township paper. I asked the editor if I could cover Little League games when I was 13 or 14, and, and he allowed me to do that. And so I sort of got my feet wet pretty early. Frank, I loved your uh, farewell column on uh, over the weekend, uh, talking about you know your long career and even at the Inquirer, you didn't start out writing about sports. Your first couple of years, you did other stuff. Uh, tell us about that, and please mention that Wilson Good screw up. Yeah. Well, I was uh, I was hired as a copy editor, and uh, and after a while, I got to be the the chief of the copy desk, and I was working in Metro. And it was election night, which is a crazy time, especially in those days with all the additions and you know, hundreds of people running around the newsroom like chickens with their head cut, heads cut off. And just before deadline, I, I had to rewrite a, rewrite the top of a story on the, on the mayoral election between Good, Wilson Good and Frank Rizzo. I think it was Frank Rizzo, yeah. And um, I hastily did it. I retyped it into the system and sent it to the composing room and they put it in type. And a little while later, we got the proofs. And here I see that I had retyped Wilson Good's name as W. Wilson Goose. <laughs> and so uh, it wasn't that long after that that I was back, that I was in sports. <laughs> I'm not sure that two are connected. But. Well, hey, Frank, in that same article, you mentioned about the 1993 Phillies and Jim Fergosi. Uh, but you didn't go into a lot of detail with that. What, tell us the Fergosi story. It sounds like it might be a good one. Yeah, he wasn't a big fan of yours, I don't think, Frank. No, no. We, we And it was mutual. You know, the feeling was actually mutual. <laughs> and he was an old school baseball guy. And he had a he had a belief about how, how everyone should act and, and how writers should act. And if you didn't sort of toe that line, he would let you know about it. And I was new to the to the baseball beat and I, you know, I did things my way and I had my own interest. I was more interested in the personalities on the team and sort of telling the story of how this team came together. And he was expecting a more X and O type guy. And that just wasn't me. But anyway, we had a number of, of run-ins, but one of them uh, was, was when I had I'd written a story about, there was dissension in the clubhouse. This was in 92 year, and, uh, they were an awful team that year, if you remember. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of veteran guys that weren't there the next year. And one of them was Wally Backman. And he he just pulled me aside one night and said, this team, you know, this is really a messed up team. The pitchers don't talk to the pitcher, the hitters, and the young guys don't talk to the old guys. He said, no wonder this, you know, this team's a mess. So I wrote the story. And, you know, you can imagine. I was on the job about two weeks. Oh. And Fugosi reads it. And next day he calls me into the office and just reads me the riot act and says, you know, I've tried to help you, but you just just keep writing what the hell you want to write. You know? <laughs> and so we had that conversation many times over the years. But 
I don't know if you're referring to the story about our the, about my second night on the job. They had a get together in uh, Clearwater at a restaurant there, Shepherd's, I think was the name of it. And the writers got to sit around with Fergosi and sort of off the record asking questions and stuff. And here's my first chance to get to know the guy up close. And I, I was gesturing with my hand to make a point or something. And I knocked two drinks into his lap. <laughs> we sort of got off on the, on the wrong foot and uh, we never really did get, get back on track, but uh, you know, he, he, the guys loved him. The guys in the clubhouse loved him. He was a, well, that must've been quite an experience because those macho row guys uh, were from what I understand, kind of tough to deal with on occasion. They didn't really like talking to the reporters, but I mean, the fans loved them just because, you know, they had the hair working and they, they could be funny, John Crux certainly, but any other great experiences or memories from those guys? Oh, gosh. I mean, I remember in spring training, uh, this was in 93, Dykstra got a new Mercedes, a 12-cylinder Mercedes sports car. And I was doing a profile on him, so he said, well, come on with me. I'll, I got to go back to the apartment. We lived in the same building, by the way. This is how long ago it was in the newspaper business. But uh, he stuck me in this car and we were riding it. And there's a bridge that goes from Clearwater to Sand Key, where we lived. And you had to go five miles an hour on this old rickety thing or you'd get a ticket. There were always people there. And if you could imagine Lenny Dykstra in a 12-cylinder Mercedes <laughs> going five miles an hour, he was going crazy, just, just chomping at the bit. So I remember that. And I don't know if I told you guys the story of Lenny on the Tonight Show. Which, uh, I, I may have, but, oh, but in '93, after the '94, after the Phillies had been to the World Series, they were sort of national celebrities mm -hmm. for their misfit uh, image. And the Tonight Show invited Lenny when the first time the Phillies were out in L.A. to appear on the show. Jay Leno was the host at the time, so it was an off day. And I said, "This will be this will be an interesting story." So I wrote the Today Show uh, PR person, and they said, "Yeah, sure, come on in." So I get there and they, and they have me sitting in the front row, like, you know, 12 feet from Jay Leno's desk. And Lenny comes out and uh, the previous guest had been, you remember Steve Urkel, the, oh, the yeah. nerd character from, what was that show? Family Matters or Family something? Matters, yeah. Yeah. And he was the first guest. And Lenny comes out and uh, he's talking to Jay, he's t asking him about the uniforms and this kind of stuff. And there's a break in the uh, commercial break. And when they do that, the lights go on in the, in the studio and in the audience. So the people on stage can see you in the audience. And Lenny looks down and sees me sitting there. And he, he hits, he elbows Urkel and says, hey, there's Frank. <laughs> <laughs> As if Steve Urkel had any idea who the hell that was. But, <laughs> yeah. but that, was, that was a fun team to cover. And, and you're right. They did not like uh, dealing with us too much. But uh, Dykstra was an exception. He, if he thought he could, you could get him a big contract, help him get a big contract. He was get all the time in the world for you. Well, Frank, you covered a lot of Penn State football along the way too, and uh, they turned into a book, uh, at least one book. Uh, how was the time in Happy Valley, and uh, how how was the Joe Paterno uh, era? Well, you know, the year I did the book, um, I think the publisher's hope was that an expectation was that this was going to be Paterno's last year. He was, he was nearing 80 and things weren't going well. And they thought, well, let's, you know, let's send a, let's get a writer in there. We'll do a book and we'll be ahead of the game. When he retires, we'll have the book out and it'll be a great bestseller. Well, that was the season. I don't know if you remember, I think it was 2004, three or four. 
when Penn State went like one and nine, they had they had trouble scoring points. They they scored like I don't know. Zach Mills was his first year's quarterback, and they you know if they just couldn't score, and they lost consistently week after week. So the next year, uh, I, I wasn't the Phillies beat writer at the time. I mean, the Penn State beat writer. I was just covering them. I took time off from the Inquirer to write this book. So when I went back to the Inquirer, they said, oh, you're familiar with Paterno and Penn State. Why don't you be, why don't you be the beat writer? So I'm thinking, oh, God, this is a one and nine team or whatever it was, two and ten. Or I didn't really want to do it. And damned if Joe doesn't turn that team into an 11 and one juggernaut and they go to the to the uh, Orange Bowl and beat Florida State with Mike. You know, remember they had Michael Robinson and. Uh, yep. yep. I, was at, was I was at that Orange Bowl. Were you really? Yeah, it was a great game. Yep. It was overtime. Was it overtime or? It was... uh, a couple overtimes. It, yeah, and it lasted, I remember, well into the night. Yep. But, I mean, that was an indication of what kind of coach Joe was. You know, you give him a little time and uh, give him some talent, and he could, yeah, he could coach, he could coach with the best of them, you know. It's, it's just sad what's happened, you know, with everybody knows what's happened up there, but, and his image has suffered as a result, but uh, the man could coach. Hey, Frank, for whatever reason, we lost your video. We still hear you loud and clearly, but we don't see your smiling face. So That may uh, be a blessing. Yeah. <laughs> but you're still there, so that's okay. okay. Well, you go back even farther than Bill and I do in terms of you know covering the Philly sports scene and Philly sports memories. We know you admired some of those Penn State teams, I think. We know you loved the 85 Villanova championship basketball team. You wrote a book about them. Any other particular favorite teams that, you, that stood out for you in Philly? Oh, I love the 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 sixty the Dick Allen Phillies. You know those teams at '64 was still the the signature year of my life. I think. I mean, I think it shaped my perspective on sports and uh, life in general. I mean, and you know, you just realize that no matter how good things look, there's always a chance it can go bad. So I guess if I'm a pessimist, we can attribute it to that. But that those teams certainly, you know, I grew up loving. Uh, the big, the Villanova, the the Temple team that won the NIT in 1969 was a great team that I loved. And I really enjoyed. I was at Temple at the time, so I may be a little biased, but uh, you know, so many of those Big Five teams, those St. Joe's teams with uh, with Matt Gukas and Cliff Anderson, and uh, the Villanova teams with Melchione and UB White and Johnny Jones and. Uh, you know, I have, I have so many great memories of the Palestra. I think uh, if there's one thing I miss in Philadelphia sports uh, at this stage in my career, which is no longer a career, but at this stage of my life, if there's one thing I miss about Philadelphia sports, it's it's those Palestra doubleheaders and the excitement that the Big Five used to create. I mean, it was inevitable that it was it was going to fade at some point, but it's still still sad that it that it happened and the way it happened and. Uh, you know, you tell people about those, uh, the way those, the excitement generated at those doubleheaders and they look at you like you had two heads, but uh, it really was, it really was a special, uniquely Philadelphia institution. And uh, I think as I look back, that's, that's the thing I miss the most is, is how that, uh, you know, the big five still exists, but it's just a shadow of itself. So yeah, uh, th those are what I remember. Those are the things I kind of remember the stage yeah yeah frank it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, I, i've shared this with chet before the the palestra was my first ever job uh i was an no. usher at the palestra in the in the you know, 72 three 
74 years old, uh, 74 as a high school kid. And uh, that's where I, my stuff formed. And man, it's just unbelievable. Great, great memories of that. Yeah, it, it, you just can't duplicate that. The way the noise echoes in that building and the, the smell of the hot dogs and the popcorn and the banners. Yeah, and the, just yeah. The, the, the legends that were coaching at the time. And um, just was, it just was a, just was a great thing that we had all to ourselves for a while. And we and we even had Yo-Yo. Remember Yo-Yo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could forget Yo-Yo. I'm one of the great characters of sort of just Well, hey Frank, you you mentioned to us uh before you you told us the Puddinhead Jones story and uh we know you like you know you're a big Dick Allen fan, but uh favorite favorite guys that you've been a fan of, maybe not covering and favorite guys that you did cover? Well, favorite guys not covering or were Dick Allen, uh, Bill Melchioni. You, you remember him? He was a yeah. great guard at Villanova. Uh, I love Ben Hawkins, the Eagles wide receiver. He, had, he used to leave his chin strap unbuttoned and just had such oh, yeah. colorful, just flair. I, I, I really enjoyed, I really used to like him as a kid. Uh, those early flyer teams, I'm trying, I loved Andre Lacroix and the French connection, that line, the, Andre Lacroix, Jean-Guy Gendron, and Simone Nollet. That was, you know, and there was a guy named Forbes Kennedy on those early teams who, his only distinction was he he led the league in penalties every year, and he was was great fun to watch. Um, So, yeah, in terms of covering guys, I mean, you know, I think Gino Auriemma was maybe the best interview I ever got just in terms of the content of the interview, not necessarily the – the level of celebrity, but he was just a tremendous, uh, really introspective guy. I think Dale Murphy might've been the nicest athlete I ever covered. I mean, you couldn't ask for a guy that was, it was sweeter. I mean, to everyone, not just to writers, but to his teammates and his opponents and, uh, just a heck of a guy. Um, you know, there were a lot of jerks along the way and, uh, you know, I think I've already mentioned one earlier today, but uh, <laughs> when did, when does that book come out, Frank? <laughs> there you go. I don't know. That's a good question. Well, Frank, you covered Olympics. You covered World Series. You covered Super Bowls. Uh, we got Olympics coming up, of course, this summer. Any special memories from the Olympics that you covered? I can remember sitting on the floor of a Japanese restaurant with Bill Conlon. You remember Bill Conlon? He was about yes. three hundred pounds at the time watching him get down into, into that position he had to get to to eat a meal in, in Japan. And, uh, that was something I'll never forget. I remember that. But, I mean, I was there for all eight, all eight of uh, Michael Phelps's gold medals in, uh, in Beijing. You know, they, they were yeah. – because they wanted to be on primetime television in the U.S., they were, they were like 7 o'clock in the morning in Beijing. So it was, that was kind of tough. Uh, you know, I remember uh, I was at the Hussein Bolt winning the uh, – 100 meters for the first time when he did the bow and arrow thing. That was, that was amazing. Some of the basketball games, I remember at USA, uh, Lithuania game, that was a, a tremendous game. Uh, just so many things about the Olympics. There was a water polo game. I, I don't remember who was playing, but I just remember at the end of it being blown away about the competitiveness and how vicious these guys were, could be to each other. It must have been a couple of former Soviet Union uh, republics that were that were taking out a lot of their uh, angers on uh, on each other on the in the pool but uh, you know, all, all kinds of things like that there was 
been just so I've been so lucky to to have been in so many of these things, uh, and um, yeah, you know the Olympics are a great spectacle. I think that opening ceremonies in Beijing with all the technological wonders that they employed was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. I know, I know that's not a a, a pat answer when you're talking about sports, but it was astounding just just to sit there and look at that and. Uh, the, the the money and the and the thought and the technology that went into that was just astounding. So there, those are just a couple of things from from the Olympics. The food in Turin in Torino, I'll never forget that. And I and also in Torino, if I can if I can extend this a, a little more, if I was staying in a in a mountain village because I was supposed to cover the skiing there, and a lot of times I'd be in Torino. And I wouldn't get back into the little village. I was a mountain village called Salzé du. It was on the French border. It even had a French name, but it was in Italy. And I didn't have a key. I was living in, a, in an apartment. There weren't, for some reason, I couldn't get a key. So I had to wait for somebody to walk into the apartment. And I would just follow them in. It must have, you know, and fortunately, they, I couldn't understand what they were saying to me, but I'm sure they weren't, they weren't happy. And there was this one little restaurateur in in the town that would stay open for me. No matter what time I got back, I could go knock on his door and he would open up and make me, make me a meal. He felt sorry for me, I guess. But uh, so that's, that's another thing I remember. A lot of my memories are things that happened away from the arena and the the court and the field, things that happened uh, kind of in the background, maybe the locker room. Well, hey, hey, Frank, we have a question I want to throw up here because I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, Larry Carlin is watching us and says, uh, always enjoyed Frank's work. Who wonder who Frank's favorite Delco athlete is? Whoa, Delco athlete. Well, I mean, I was such a basketball nut back then, and I, you know, I didn't miss a good old Harry game for four years. I don't think, but I loved Tom Inglesby. You know, speaking yeah. of Delco, his his son's more famous than he is now. A lot more famous this this yeah. month, anyway, isn't he? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> he was just such a great player. Just such a you know, he he did he wasn't showy at all. He wasn't there wasn't anything flashy about Tom Inglesby, but he was just so fundamentally sound that if he took a jumper, he was you were pretty sure he was going to make it. Uh, so I really liked him. He was one of my favorite Delco athletes. Uh, gosh, who else? Been so many. Remember Don Clune was a played for the Giants briefly. He was a tight end at O'Hara. You like those O'Hara guys? Yeah, that's right. well, you know. That's the only thing I can remember at this stage of my life. I, I thought you were going to throw Cappy out there, but he's a Bonner guy. Yeah, so yeah well, that's we true. Absolutely. Absolutely. I went to school with his brother, Marty, at Teppo, and, uh, yeah, he was – Capoletti made us all proud of here from Delray County, sure. Well, Frank, you've watched uh, basketball for a long time. His frequent injuries aside, Joel Embiid, uh, where does he rank with the other great 76ers centers? You know the other couple of greats. And how far might this Sixers team go? It's so hard to comp- compare eras. You know, I remember I played golf with Jimmy Lanham a couple of years ago, and he was right about the time Embiid had been injured and was just starting to play, and he told me, this guy is unbelievable. He's like the greatest seven-footer I've ever seen in my life. He can do things Will can't do, uh, couldn't do. And you, you look at him, and it's true. I mean, you know, he can do things Will couldn't do, but it was a different game, a different era, a different style of play. You know, and and you're and right. You're talking about injuries. I mean, you know, yeah. Will played. Will never sat. Will never didn't sat out a minute of a game. He just played through it all. Now, 
it's a little bit of a different game. And Will had a little bit of a different body. He was he was a little sturdier, I think, than than Embiid. But uh, I, I just, those two guys, I mean, nobody compares to Will in my mind. Maybe I'm since I'm 71. Maybe that's you know, uh, maybe that's an indication of just how old I am. But he, you know, he was just such a dominant player. I was, I was watching his show the other night, and they were just talking about the night he had 55 rebounds. I mean, 55 <laughs> rebounds. That's almost as amazing as 100 points. And one year he led the league in assists. You know, I mean, uh, we've all heard these things about Will, but they still astound you when you when you actually see the the statistics on paper. Or uh, he, you just couldn't stop him, and he was he was stronger than anyone. He was he was more agile than any any of his any of fellow centers in the league. Uh, well, maybe Russell aside, but he was, you know, he was four or five inches bigger than Russell. So Russell had a hell of a time trying to contain him. He, and he, he, if you look at the, his statistics, you get the Celtics, Russell never did contain him. I mean, Russell may have helped contain everybody else, but he never did. He couldn't stop Will. And mm-hmm. Will, Russell was probably the greatest defensive player of all time. So uh, that's well, a long well, way of saying that Will was, was, was great. Hey, hey, Frank, before we run out of time, I want to ask you, you, um, I don't know if this was actually a planned retirement or it all kind of just happened real quickly, but what's on the docket for Frank Fitzpatrick and his family here uh, now that you've hit that retirement? Well, I think, as I said, I'm gonna, I hope to play a little more golf, spend more time with my grandchildren, maybe travel with my wife. Uh, but I'll still be writing from time to time. They've, they've already asked me if I would continue to do history pieces and maybe an essay from here or there. And, you know, even some of the editors in the other departments have asked me if I would if I would mind writing something from time to time features. And I got something from the business editor just yesterday saying, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And I said, no, I just <laughs> hired two days ago for God's sake. <laughs> I don't want to work yet. But uh, so, yeah, I'll be I'll be my, you'll see my byline around, you know. Uh, so, you know, anytime you guys want to talk about what's happening and. In 1962 or something, I'm, I'm your guy. <laughs> oh, we, we already got you booked for your end of the year special visit. Oh, I can't wait. Thank you. <laughs> all right, Frank. Well, hey, we've used up all of our time. We certainly appreciate you jumping on with us really quick. We only invited you just a couple of days ago when you retired, and we're glad you took the time to do it with us. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it, you guys, and uh, I enjoy your show. Let's keep it up. All right, Thanks. Frank. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, Chet. Hey, how good was that, huh? That was awesome. Great stuff from Frank. Oh, yeah. We could have gone on all night long. Great stuff. Hey, Chet, uh, you sitting on your couch because I got a feeling your couch is getting more mileage than your car. And it's time to start saving with Allstate's pay-as-you-go auto insurance. Yeah, you know that, Bill. Allstate's pay-as-you-go auto insurance puts you in control. You only pay for the miles you drive with the same full coverage that a traditional policy offers. Pay-for-mile insurance gives customers greater control of their insurance costs. See how much you can save with pay-per-mile car insurance by calling your local agent. In Westchester, Pennsylvania, that is Dave Lavoy. Call Dave at 610-430-0700. Again, 610-430-0700. And uh, start to save more now that you are driving less. Hey, everybody, it's Willie Nile here, and you're listening to Chet and Bill on Philly Press Box Radio. You lucky people. Don't be interrupting, Willie. You were slow on the Willie Nile switch tonight, pal. <laughs> I didn't think so. There must have been a lag down there in Florida, pal. Must have been. Must have been. 
Well, hey, uh, let's talk Sixers for a minute, a uh, minute more. They're they're in a tussle uh, with the Hawks. Series in two games, game five in progress. Uh, some dominating wins by the Sixers, and then they kind of laid an egg the other night, uh, and Doc Rivers, none too happy about it. Well, yeah, and why should he be? I mean, they had a 17 or 18-point lead and then blew it. No killer instinct. Uh, Tobias Harris had a great first half and took only five shots in the second half. Ben Simmons, just not aggressive at all offensively, took just one shot the entire second half. He needed to step up and didn't. He was one for five from the foul line. That's been a continued problem all the playoffs. Uh, and, of course, Joel Embiid had a horrible night, thanks largely, I'm pretty sure, due to that torn meniscus that was causing him a lot of pain. He admitted it was really bothering him the other night. He just uh, really struggled on offense, didn't have the lift that he needed. He was 4 for 20 from the field. 0 for 12 in the second half. The Hawks didn't do anything special to win that game. The Sixers just gave it away. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get to that whole injury thing a little bit later on. But I do want to throw something out. I I shared this with you today, but it came out late. Most people probably didn't hear it. But I want to read this, Chet, and, and have your comment, because I think you have a comment on it. LeBron James, who I hate to use as the spokesman of the NBA, but he is the spokesman of the NBA, NBA, tweeted, they all didn't want to listen to me about the start of the season. I knew exactly what would happen. I only wanted to protect the well-being of the players, which ultimately is the product and benefit of our game. These injuries isn't just part of the game. It's the lack of pure rim rest. Rest before starting back up eight, possibly nine all-stars have missed playoff games, most in league history. This is the best part of the year for the league and fans, but missing a ton of your favorite players. It's insane. If there's one person that knows about the body and how it works all year round, it's me. I speak for the health of all the players, and I hate to see this many injuries this time of the year. Sorry, fans. Wish you guys were seeing all your favorite guys right now. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know how much truth – there is to that. I mean, they did have to alter the schedule, you know, last year and this year because of the coronavirus. We saw more injuries in baseball last year also in the shortened season. People, athletes get into a certain rhythm, a certain schedule, and, you know, when they're off of that, I, I can see that it could mess them up a, a bit. But on the other hand, they're supposedly in such great shape that they should be able to adapt to a, a slightly different schedule, a slighter, slightly later start to the season. I know it was compacted, um, you know, from the end of last season, and I know they played a few more games in a little less time, uh, less games overall, but, uh, you know, more compact schedule. But you would think these guys, with the trainers that they have and the the ability they have, they should be able to overcome that. So I'm kind of torn as far as what he's saying there. Well, you know what? You're probably going to find this hard to believe, but I agree with him. Uh, I agree with him, and I we've seen it in hockey. We've seen it in football. Uh, injuries, injuries, injuries. You know, longer seasons, shorter breaks. Um, the, you know, yeah, they're, they're in phenomenal shape, all of them. They're the greatest athletes in the world, all these pros. Um, but the body is the body. The body can only take so much pounding. The knees only take so much pounding. Um, I'm going to agree with LeBron that uh, – you know, I don't know the answer. I don't know if, you know, you're not going to get shorter seasons. But to the point, and you're going to find this really hard that for me to say that I'm saying this, Jet, 
from the load management standpoint, like he's saying, now is the time that you need to be playing and these guys are breaking down. You're going to see more and more load management based on just this conversation from LeBron. Yeah, uh, and it might not be a bad thing. We saw Kawhi Leonard go down last night. So hopefully, you know, things will get back on schedule now that COVID is mostly, you know, behind us. And hopefully things will uh, get better in the years going forward. By the way, one other thing, how about Kevin Durant last night playing the entire 48 minutes, which nobody has done in three years in the NBA in the playoffs, which is hard to believe in itself. And uh, he seemed to come through it okay. 48 minutes, 49 points, a triple-double. Very impressive. I think he probably slept well last night. Oh, man. <laughs> Light up the All right. Well, more, more on the Sixers as we go on. Hopefully, uh, by the time we're together next week, we're moving on to another round because uh, if not, as you mentioned earlier, there are going to be some unhappy fans in Philadelphia. Speaking of moving on, let's talk baseball. Let's talk baseball, Chet. We, we mentioned uh, the Phils go to L.A. They lose two close games in a row. Zach Wheeler, Clayton Kershaw tonight at 10-10 Eastern if you're able to stay up that late. But then off to San Francisco to see Gabe Kapler in their first, that first place Giants punch for three games. The Phillies need some wins, Chet. Yeah, they sure do. The West Coast has often been unkind to the Phils. And, well, here we go again. Two straight losses in L.A., just four runs for the Phils in the two games so far. A slew of runners left on base. That's been a problem. And, you know, by the way, you and I have had as many hits over the past week as Reese Hoskins. That's not good. Actually, what's it up to, 30? Over 33 30? now. 33. Over 33. 33. Man, yeah. you know what? That's talking about not buying a hit right there. <laughs> wow. Yikes. Well, you know, they, they've got some good pitching uh, the last couple nights. They just haven't been able to put it together and – um, geez, you know, they're five back in the Mets. DeGrom's going tonight. Kershaw's going against us. You lose again. You're down six, probably. Uh, that gap is widening quickly. Yeah. Time to get moving. That's right. And, and on a good note, some guys are swinging the bat pretty well. Gene Segura, obviously. O'Double's swinging well. Uh, Alex Baum's starting to swing the bat pretty well, too. The bad news, Gene Segura got injured last night, Bill. I don't know if you know that. Late in the yeah. game. And, uh, Nothing official as yet that I've seen, but there's a very good chance from what I'm hearing that he might have to go on the injured list. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, you had a chance to visit with the voice of the Phillies, Tom McCarthy, uh, T-Mac, just this afternoon. So uh, what's T-Mac's take on what's going on and uh, where does team's going? I guess he doesn't travel, right? So he's still around. Correct. He's yeah. still in Jersey, uh, you know, and then in Philly for the games. Uh, well, you're going to hear that, but before I play the interview with T-Mac, I wanted to relive what happened one week ago tonight, Bill, when in the bottom of the ninth and the Phils down one nothing against the visiting Braves, uh, rookie Luke Williams in his first major league start gave fans quite a thrill, and it was T-Mac with the call. Fly ball left field. Already is going back toward the wall. It did creep into everybody's mind. It's a two-run walk. Yes, sir! How about this welcome to Philadelphia? 
Hey, Tom, great to talk with you again. And just before our interview, I'm going to have started some uh, a positive note for you. Uh, I will have played your call from a week ago tonight. Luke Williams' walk-off home run to beat the Braves. That was certainly one of those moments that, you know, a lot of people, including you, I'm sure, will never forget. Yeah, I, I, I think it was one of those that you don't expect, Chet, honestly. it's um, it, it was pretty cool. But then again, that's what walk-offs are about. I mean, so many people try to do them, and a lot of times it just doesn't come to fruition. That one was pretty special, though, and, and partly because his family was there. The moment of the game, Eflin had pitched so well for six innings, and the Phillies got him no runs. Uh, but to do it like that, um, you know, I'll be honest with you, off the bat, I thought, yeah, this is going to be an extra base hit, but I didn't think it was going to carry out of the ballpark the way it did. And, uh, you know, Joe said the same thing from the dugout. It is pretty sweet, though. I mean, that kind of stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, very cool indeed. So three straight walk-off wins last week, and then a Sunday shutout of the Yankees. I was there for that. What a great atmosphere. But then a trip out to the West Coast that has started with two losses to the Dodgers. I mean, I know they're a great team, but why have the Phillies struggled so much on the road the last few years? You know, it's a great question. I, I, I felt it was more because of pitching than anything else, but that obviously hasn't been the case even on these two games. Uh, because pitching... To me, I mean, if you don't have a steady stream of starting pitching or the bullpen, uh, you're in trouble. I mean, particularly against teams like the Dodgers. You know, obviously, it's a mixture of things. I mean, against the Dodgers, these are two winnable games. They're two for 20 with runners in scoring positions. So that, to me, is the biggest fault in this particular series. But I think you can go back to the road woes the Phillies have had recent years. And every single trip seems to have a different personality as far as their you know, what the games that they lose. And I can't put my, my finger on it. I really can't. Um, you know, the hope is, is that as this season continues on, that they, they figure it out because, you know, they're five out right now with the Mets playing as well as they are, as crazy as that is with all their injuries. Uh, but I can't put my finger on the road woes. I really can't. Well, one thing that's not helping certainly is injuries. Bryce Harper left last night's game with back ties. He's not having a great year physically. He's just 28 years old. Seems like one thing after another. How big a concern is Bryce Harper's health? I think the nagging stuff is probably a concern. Uh, and I think it's a concern for him, too, because he put so much effort this offseason into making sure his back was solid. Uh, so I think that's concerning for him. Uh, he, he plays the game from a physical standpoint pretty hard. Uh, I know that, you know, when we watch him play in the outfield, he's moving all the time. I think his swing is extremely strong and violent. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's the same he's always played. You know, somebody asked me today, does he need to back off a little bit? I don't know how you back off. I really don't. You know, I have a son who plays minor league baseball uh, who dove into the stands to catch a ball during preseason this past year, this past uh, preseason, hurt his foot pretty bad. And somebody said, well, he's got to back off a little bit. I said, I don't know how you tell him how to back off. That's my thing, Chad. I, I don't know how you tell somebody that plays that way, you know, that they have to back off the way, you know, I guess people would like him to, to a certain extent. Um, you know, I, I think it's always concerning when you have nagging injuries like this. Chase Utley had them too. But again, it's the way the person plays. And now we'll see what happens with Gene Segura, who may have to go on the injured list. We don't know as yet. Uh, speaking of concerns, though, Reese Hoskins, who was so terrific in May, is just really scuffling here in June. I think he's over his last 33. Is it just bad luck or is he doing something different or what? Well, I think it's mechanical in a lot of ways. I mean, and I say that only because of listening to Joe, listening to Ben Davis, listening to Ruben Amaro talk about it, Kevin Franzen. It's very upper body, which means he's, you know, he's kind of floating a little bit. I, I'm not a swing doctor to be able to tell you what, what's wrong and what he needs to fix. I will tell you this, that, 
you know, 0 for 33 is a long streak. You know, Ryan Howard was 0 for 35 at one point. Now he was at the end of his career, but he was 0 for 35. But the last few games of that season, he turned it around. Um, the same can be said for all the others that went through these kind of funks. Joe Morgan, for instance, in 83, went through a terrible funk with the Phillies. He was, you know, 0 for 35, I think it was, and or 0 for 36. And then he had that September to remember. So it will turn around. I, I, this is not anything that's, that's physical injury-wise. I just think he's in a really bad rut right now. We've seen him in these kind of streaks. Not this bad, but we've seen him in these kind of streaks before. Yeah. Well, you and Ruben. I mean, I, I know he's frustrated. I will say oh, yeah. this. What I thought was actually pretty good, and, and he is this way. I mean, uh, you know, I love him as a person. He's a great kid. Yeah, you know, he, he sat up and talked yesterday after the game about it. I mean, he was, you know, he doesn't back off from it. Yeah. Well, you and Ruben talked about this on the broadcast Tuesday night. The Phils have a pretty solid one-two-three pitching rotation right now with Zach Wheeler, Aaron Nola, and uh, Zach Eflin as well. They're five games out, I know, but will those guys, do you think, at least keep them in the NL East race? You know, I, I was thinking about this last night driving home. Um, it was obviously, you know, pretty uh, pretty late last night as I was driving home. They're in a – this is a – they're in a danger zone right now. Five out with no thought of a wild card because of the way the East is. To me, they're in a little bit of a danger zone. Uh, yes, I do think they'd keep a minute. I do think that they have to find ways to win these games. You know, they, they're just not winning all of them when these three are on the hill. And I think that's the part that is probably a little concerning, Chet, that they have to kind of rectify. But, yeah, I think they'll keep them in still to play. And um, it's it, we're getting to a danger. I, I thought, beginning with this national series, that, you know, the, that last homestand, that this was the best, biggest stretch, most important stretch for the Phillies. Um, and I still believe that. I know they're 6-4 and four during the stretch, it's the last 10, uh, but they got to figure this out. If they can get a win tonight against the Dodgers and then win the series against the Giants, then I feel a little bit better. Well, the bullpen, though, not as bad as last year, is still often shaky, including closer Hector Neris. Is he still the best option, you think, to close games? I think he is. I, and I know people probably, you know, look at that and say you're crazy. Um, but, I, Chad, I, I still think he is. And, and I have a few th- thoughts on it. Uh, I, I just don't think Jose Alvarado throws enough strikes. That's my mm. biggest concern. I don't think Connor Brogdon has enough experience. Um, and I think Sam Coonrod, as good as he's been, it's been a good acquisition. Uh, I still don't know if he can get in there and close on an everyday basis. Um, it, unless there's somebody else you can present to me to be in that spot, I just think Hector is, because of his seasoning more than anything else, is the most experienced guy that we have out there. I, but I will acknowledge that, He's got to be more aggressive in the strike zone with some of these uh, innings, particularly with a three-run lead. Tom, you mentioned tonight's uh, pitching matchup. Zach Wheeler for the Phils. Clayton Karshaw for the Dodgers. That's a pretty good matchup. Uh, Wheeler's been terrific. You looking forward to this one? I am. Uh, I, I, you know, it's it, it's not the same that I used to feel when Roy Halladay or Cliff Lee pitched uh, because the team was in first place all the time at that point. But it's close to that. You know, you kind of look at it and say, man, I can't wait to see what he's going to do tonight. Uh, and the fact that Kershaw's pitching, too. Now, he's had a little bit of a renaissance, although I'm interested to see how he responds. His last outing, after all this little talk comes out about the um, the tackiness on the fingers and things like that, his numbers were down a little bit. Uh, but I think this is a kind of this is a cool matchup. I think the pitching's actually been – I mean, the Dodgers starter in game one wasn't great. Um, Spencer Howard was okay. I thought F1 was good last night. I thought Orias was good last night. So I, I look forward to these kind of pitching matchups. 
Well, speaking of sticky fingers, uh, Tom, batting averages are way down this year, more strikeouts than ever. Part of that apparently because pitchers are cheating. MLB now will apparently be cracking down on that. Ten-game suspensions for violators. Will this threat of disciplinary action change things, do you think? Well, I think it already has, only because of the chirping that's going on for the pitchers. Um, You know, Steven Souza, who has just been added to the Dodgers roster, uh, sent something out on social media about the pitchers and the quote-unquote cheating that they're doing. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what happens when more hitters become vocal about it. Uh, Tyler Glass now from the Rays obviously is attributing his injury to the fact that he can't use any of the substances that he was previously allowed to use. Trevor Bauer talked last night, uh, and, and I, di- I didn't read his social media post until after we talked about it. So then I went back last night when I got home. It was like 3 a.m., and I was reading all the social media posts saying that he you know, was doing everything with rosin and sweat. Uh, I do think we're going to see a change. I mean, it's been a very subtle change, Chet, since the – the verbiage came out originally when people started talking about it. 236 to 247, you know, team batting average is up since that time. Uh, I don't know how drastic a change is going to be, but the fact that pitchers are talking the way they're talking leads you to believe that something's that, that there is some truth to what's going on. We'll certainly keep an eye on that. Hey, next stop for the Phils, Tom, uh, out in San Francisco against Gabe Kapler's Giants. Is it possible Gabe is a better manager than Phillies fans might believe? Um, I think he's getting better as a manager. Uh, I still think that his quirkiness as a skipper and some of the moves that he made, um, you know, and some of the changes he made to personnel and what, what he wanted them to do, I still think that it was the right move to move on from him. Um, you know, he's a good guy. I mean, I, I always love talking to him. He's a good friend. So I'm happy that he's getting an opportunity. Uh, I think he's a better manager now with more experience. And I will say this, Chet, I mean, this is a no knock to anybody, you know, with the Phillies pitching staff. He's got better pitchers than he had with the Phillies. I mean, not they're not better than Aaron Noah, although Gossman is having better numbers than Aaron Noah, but he's, he's got better pitchers. Yeah. And I think that that's part of it. Plus his offense, I mean, they were down 7 nothing yesterday, and they wound up winning again. Yeah. Again, it was against the Diamondbacks. Uh, but he's just got he's got better personnel than he had with the Phillies, I think full bore across the board. And I think he's just more experienced than, than he was. Final thing, Tom, I know some of the beat reporters are now back on yeah. the road covering the team. Awesome. Any word yet on how soon you and uh, your guys might be in visiting Paul Bar- ballparks again? Yeah. I don't think it'll be this year for us, but I do yeah. think radio is going to start traveling after the all-star break consistently. I think that you're going to see Scott and Kevin Franzen go to uh, events that are on the East coast that they can travel to through car, uh, maybe train to, um, but I do think that after the All-Star break, you might see them travel a little more consistently. I, I don't know that for sure, but that's the feeling I'm getting around baseball. Radio obviously travels less than TV does because we have a you know a small army that is part of our crew. Um, but I think that you know for us, I'm just being realistic, Chad. I mean, nobody's really told us anything. I would assume that we're going to be uh, in studio on the road while the team's on the road for the rest of the year. And then, you know, hopefully... In 2022, there's no looking back as far as that goes. And, you know, I, I, I appreciate everybody's patience with it. Um, you know, my bosses have been very lucid uh, and transparent with what they've told us. Uh, and I've appreciated that. Uh, I appreciate the technology where we've kind of learned to do things. I also appreciate my crew more than I've ever appreciated my crew. Uh, and, and I know that there's probably no objectivity to this, but man, our camera operators in Philadelphia 
are unbelievable. Um, and I think we've noticed that from the games that we've done where we're in the studio watching somebody else's feed. It just really makes me appreciate their talents. And I, I, I'm excited about that because I always had a high regard for them anyway. Uh, but I appreciate them a little bit more. I appreciate, you know, our producer, Jeff Halleckman, and our director, Nick Marchetta, even more, too, uh, for what they're able to accomplish. Uh, because they're in a studio about 20 feet from us trying to patch all this together in a myriad of seconds. Uh, like last night, you know, nobody saw Dodgers, Phillies, scoreboard operator, computer operator. Nobody saw that JT Romuto had a check swing on that pitch in the ninth inning, and the umpire had changed it. And uh, if we were on the road, we would have seen it. All right. Amen. Let's hope the Phils can get back on the winning track. T-Mac, great to talk with you once again. All right, Chet. Thank you, buddy. Well, that's some good stuff right there, Chet. Yeah, T-Mac's awesome. Uh, you know, I had I had trouble getting this organized because he is such a busy guy. He had, I think, six interviews today with, you know, various people around the country to talk about just baseball in general and the Phillies. So uh, I'm glad he was able to squeeze me in. Absolutely. We, we appreciate that. One, one other Philly note I'm going to make, Chet, and then we, we got to move on, is uh, if Joe Girardi takes another pitcher out like Wheeler and Nola at 105 pitches with, <laughs> with a shutout the other night in the eighth inning uh, with 12 strikeouts and no walks, something might go through the big screen. It's just not it, – it's idiotic. That's the I only word I can come up with. I know you love that 100 Idiotic. All right, I'm going to let that go because that's a whole story for another day. Move along. All right, Chet, uh, let's see. Let's give a shout-out to all the shows over at the Edge of Philly Sports Network, which you and I are part of. Bird's IQ every Monday, 7 p.m., live with Kyle and Eric Quinn talking Eagles football. Edge of Philly Sports Live with Joe, Freddie, and Big Al. They cover four for four and so much more. Watch live Wednesday nights at 930 Eastern time and join Tom Kelly and the gang at Patterson Avenue fanatics Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Talking all things Philly sports. You can check out all the shows at www.eopsports.com. Help us out by hitting those subscribe, follow and like buttons. And as always share with your friends and family. Don't forget to sign up for the weekly EOP newsletter that arrives each Friday via email. Yeah. Yes. So, Chet, are we ringing the bell tonight? Hey, why not, Bill? Why not? Let's do it. We got something special because there's a, a semi-holiday coming up this weekend. So let's do it. Bill, ahead of Mother's Day last month, I gave you a bunch of my favorite mom or mother or mama songs. And it's only fair that with Sunday being Father's Day that I do the same for, you know, my favorite dad, father, papa songs, that kind of thing, right? There are some great songs about fathers that I didn't include in this list, though, because they don't have any of those key words in the title. Things like Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle, Mike and the Mechanics, The Living Years, or Dan Fogelberg's Leader of the Band. All great songs, but I'm excluding them. I'm also going to leave out Father Christmas by the Kinks, and I believe in Father Christmas by Greg Lake, because, well, they're holiday songs and not really about dads. So before I give you my actual top ten, here's a look at some that I considered, but that will have to settle for honorable mention. Some great ones by artists including James Brown, Johnny Cash, George Michael, Madonna, Nilsson, Bob Seger, Paul Simon, and The Who, among others. Yep, lots of great ones, but for me, not quite top 10 material. Now, the ones that I will mention next 
are. So here we go. My top 10 in reverse order, of course. Number 10 is a fun country song. It's called Daddy's Money by Ricochet. Ninth is Fleetwood Mac's Oh Daddy, Christine McVie on lead vocals on that one. At number eight is a fun pop tune from 1989, also called Oh Daddy. Completely different song, though. That one is by Adrian Ballou with help from his then 11-year-old daughter. Coming in at number seven, the great Eric Clapton and My Father's Eyes. Sixth is a terrific tune from 2007 called Father and Friend by Elaine Clark with some help from his real-life dad, Dane Clark. As for the top five, well, The Temptations masterpiece, Papa was a Rolling Stone. Uh, That had to be on the list, right? Uh, An early 70s classic for sure. Number four, a wonderful song written and sung by Peter Gabriel about his dad and him called fittingly Father Son. Third is a great song about a not-so-great dad. It's Everclear's Father of Mine. At number two, then, a beautiful tune by the late, great Luther Vandross, Dance With My Father. And for me, the very best dad or father song, one that was originally released as a B-side to the Cat Stevens hit, Moon Shadow, and it was also then on the great 1970 album, T for the Tillerman. It's called Father and Son. But take your time. Think a lot, I think of everything you've got, for you will still be here tomorrow, but your dreams may not. Yusuf, Cat Stevens, father and son, I love that one, and that is my number one. That is my list. Happy Father's Day this weekend to all of the great dads out there. And that's my number one also. That and, and Cats in the Cradle that you eliminated, yeah. uh, I, those are those would be my two top ones. Yeah, I didn't go with that restriction. Cats in the Cradle would absolutely be in the top three. That's a terrific song. I'm with you. Good stuff, good stuff. And uh, happy Father's Day to you, too, as we come up on the weekend. You hey, got uh, Sixers 11, Hawks 7 at the moment. 9.15 in the first... Uh, Corkmaz in the starting lineup's got five points. Go Sixers. All right. Hey, Chet, great guests tonight, Frank Fitzpatrick and Tom McCarthy. Who's coming to Philly Press Box Radio next week? You got a you got a tall order to fill. <laughs> well, next week, we're not sure where we're going to be in terms of the Sixers postseason. Hopefully, it will still be going on. I'm pretty sure that it will. But we will talk Sixers with uh, Inquirer 76ers beat writer, uh, Keith Pompey, this guy right here. There he is. Keith Pompey joining us for the first time since December. Will there be a second guest? I don't know. That is yet to be determined. Well, do we have to talk Giants? <laughs> Only if you bring it up. I'm not going to. He's a Giants fan. Jeez, oh, we will do that without that. All right. Uh, party shot for you, or did you cover it? I did not cover it. <clears throat> I'll take a drink of my medicine here. Mm. All right. Yeah, Bill, I I would love to tell you that Ray Dinger's book, Finished Business, is fantastic and a must read. But 
Well, the truth is, I've only read the introduction and the first chapter so far, so uh, I can't really give it a, a full grade just yet, but I'm pretty sure that I will be able to tell you how terrific it is in a couple of weeks. I'm a slow reader. Sorry about that. Uh, Ray is an amazing writer, and this is you know, a book of his reflections on 50 years of covering Philly sports, including, of course, time covering the Phillies and Flyers back in the day, the Broad Street Bully era, his time at NFL Films, and, of course, Lots of stuff about the Eagles, highlighted by that Super Bowl 52 title. Him, you know, meeting up with his son and hugging and that special moment. Uh, so there's there's that in the book as well. Um, even without having read the book yet, I am absolutely positive that I can recommend Finished Business. And it does, of course, make a great Father's Day gift for any Philadelphia sports fans. By the way, Ray has a couple of more book signings coming up. He has one tomorrow which is Thursday the 17th, if you're watching it live. That's at the Barnes & Noble in Broomall. Then another one on Saturday at a Barnes & Noble in Wilmington, Delaware. That's at, I believe, 2 o'clock on Saturday. So again, Finished Business by Ray Dinger. He had an amazing line for that when I was there a week and a half ago down in Morristown. And it's not surprising. Everybody loves Ray Diddy. So again, get the book and Bill, happy Father's Day to you and uh, to all the fathers out there. Absolutely. I was going to say the same thing. Happy Father's Day. Happy kind of family Father's Day, too. It's a chance to bring the families together, and uh, hopefully everybody gets to do that. I'm kind of looking forward to it myself. Anything else before we wrap it? One other thing, Bill. I have that uh, national day calendar. Tomorrow, Thursday, is Eat Your Vegetables Day. I'm not a great vegetables eater. They recommend the healthy ones like spinach, broccoli, Kale, cauliflower, I don't like any of them. Carrots, I'm okay with. And, you know, the basic stuff like corn and green beans and peas, they're okay too. But tomorrow is also National Apple Strudel Day. And that one, I'm all on board with. I'm, I'm on board with that as well. <laughs> That's all I got. Bill Six, just wrap it up, Bill. All right, let's wrap it up. Let's thank tonight's special guests, Frank Fitzpatrick and Tom McCarthy, our sponsors, the Irish Rover Station House, Bob Sullivan's LikeYourAge.com. PPCC 118 Razroom and Dave LaVoy of Allstate's Insurance in Westchester, PA. For Jim Chesko, this is Bill Furman. We hope you enjoyed the show. We'll join Philly Press Box Radio next Wednesday, June 23rd at 7 p.m. You can listen live on Facebook through our website, phillypressboxradio.com, blogtalkradio.com, all the podcast places, Google, Apple, iHeartRadio, everywhere. We're everywhere, Chet. Check us out. With that, high hopes, Philadelphia sports fans, and let's go Sixers. Yeah, let's go Sixers. Come on, play the song. Clap your hands, everybody.